Hey, great to be with you all. Happy second Sunday of Advent. Here we are in December, believe it or not. Um, It's great to be back with you guys. Uh, Many of you know who I am. My name is Will. Uh, I've been a church planting resident here at Sojourn for the past couple years. Uh, Some of you uh, might not know me at all. Maybe you're here for the first time. And uh, let me just extend to you a warm welcome. Uh, We're glad that you've joined us here this morning. Um, The reason that you don't see a whole lot of me here is because I'm typically out next county over in the Manassas area where we're working on a brand new gospel work. We're planting New City Fellowship, and uh, we'll talk more about that later in the service, but it's always great to be back with you here uh, this morning. And we are going to continue the near end of our time in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We're approaching uh, the end of it. We've been in it for the better part of a year, and we're going to be in chapter 7 in verses 24 through 27 this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to read along with us, let me invite you just to raise your hand. Some folks are going to be handing some uh, copies of the scriptures out so you can read along with us. And let me also just say, uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, please take that one home with you. Uh, That's our gift to you. Uh, We're glad that you've joined us this morning, and uh, we hope you can take that home and have a have a copy of the Bible in your own house. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 this morning, verses 24 through 27. And I'm going to read this for us. Uh, We'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. So read along with me, starting in verse 24. Jesus says to us, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let's pray together. Lord, as we um, celebrate this Advent season, that the light has come into the world through the person of Jesus. We have grateful hearts that because of your coming, we have now crossed over from very dark places into the kingdom of your light. And that's what you've been talking to us for the better part of a year about in the Sermon on the Mount. You've been showing us what life is like in your kingdom. And as we've seen this, we've reflected on the beauty that exists there and the reality that there simply is nowhere else that we would rather be. And as we close this time, what a temptation there is for us with the Sermon on the Mount for us to sort of uh, applaud at your words and uh, appreciate the nice ideas that you've given us, but let it have little to no effect on our actual lives. What a tragedy that would be. Lord, you are not a coach. You are not someone who gives us suggestions. You are the Lord of the kingdom of light that we now dwell in. And I pray that we would take your words as them coming from our Lord. Help us to submit our lives and to operate in legitimate obedience to what you've called us to. Lord, I pray for those of us in our midst who who don't know you at all. Maybe they've been invited here and really the last thing on their mind is obedience to Jesus. I pray that you would open their eyes this morning um, to the dangerous spot that that is. Um, That that you would just release barriers and allow them to engage with your word. 
This is not the words of man. These are the words of the living God. So for those of you who don't know you at all, I just pray that you'd speak to them this morning. And to all of us, we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to jump in to Matthew 7 here. I feel like it's helpful to do a little bit of background work. Um, deal with uh, some, some background uh, theological importance that will, I think, help guide our time in this passage. Um, and then we'll jump into it, and I think it'll make sense why we did that. But one of the more difficult questions that followers of Jesus have had to consider through the centuries is this. What is the relationship between my works of obedience and the Christian life? What's the relationship between these two things? It may seem to you like theological nitpicking. Is it really that important that we spend time talking about that? If Jesus tells us to do something, let's just do it. But getting this relationship right is so important that if you mess up the relationship between the works of obedience that we're called to and the way that we relate to God, we run a risk of losing the Christian faith all together. And there was a theologian in the beginning of the 20th century, his name was John Murray, and he kind of simplified this controversy by looking at the way we relate to God through three basic steps. And he said that basically every religion that's out there approaches God or their idea of God or their moral values in this order. Step one, believe in God. Step two, do what that God says. And step three, you'll be declared righteous. You'll have a right standing with that God. So for example, we know in the world of Islam that step one is to believe in Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. Step two is to do what Muhammad has said, what he's revealed. And step three is if you do what you were told, you'll then have a right standing. Your good will outweigh your bad and you'll be declared righteous. Similarly, in Buddhism, you embrace Buddha as an enlightened teacher. Step two, you order your life around that teaching. And then step three, you'll find yourself on the right side of karma. This is the typical three-step pattern that really every world religion follows. And even if you're a secular person, you came here this morning, you don't describe yourself as very religious, I would venture to say there's even a somewhat similar pattern in your own life, even if it doesn't follow uh, along with, with uh, with religious verbiage. Maybe it goes something like this. You find a set of principles or values that are important to you. You order your life after those principles or values. And at the end of the day, you're declared to be a good person. You, you assess your life on it, whether or not you were able to uh, uh, live up to those, to those values. And this is the major system that most world religions and many of us just naturally operate in. Believe, obey, and you'll be declared righteous. Here's the thing. Christianity, and we have to get this right, takes this order and it flips it on its head. It, it goes like this. Believe in Jesus and what he's done for you by dying in your place on the cross. Step two, at the moment you believed, you are declared righteous. You are in the right with a holy God. He, he views you as a member of his family on the basis of that belief. But step three is that works of obedience then follow. Believe in Jesus, be accepted, follow his law, follow his commands. Now, a famous church father named Tertullian said, to this order, there are two major enemies, and he quoted it like this, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is crucified by two errors. The first is legalism. We talk about that a lot, which is basically just reverting the Christian faith back to that old order and saying, I believe in Jesus, I do what he says, and on the basis of me doing what he says, I'll be accepted and declared righteous. That's legalism. You fall into that, you lose the Christian faith altogether. But the other problem, the other enemy that, that, that this order 
can fall subject to is known as antinomianism. Sounds like a big word. You probably don't need to memorize it. It just means against the law, someone who's against the law. And it goes something like this. If I'm justified by faith, if I have a right standing with God by grace alone, what importance is there in obeying what he says at all? If I'm accepted and welcomed by grace through faith, why care about the works of the law at all? Why care about obedience at all? And this enemy is just as deadly to the gospel as legalism. And what Jesus has been doing here in Matthew chapter 7 over the past few weeks is taking this idea of antinomianism, that our works of obedience don't matter at all, and he's been smashing it week after week. So if you look back with me back in, uh, we, we, we kicked things off. I was here a while ago with the golden rule in 712. Jesus highlighted the importance of the, our works of obedience and the way that it relates to our relationships with people. Then if you jump down over to, to verse 15 where we were last week, he begins talking about false prophets and describes the importance of works of obedience bearing fruit in recognizing true Christians. Jesus essentially shows that if you claim to be a Christian, yet there's no evidence in your life that backs that up, you're probably lying. And then he continues on with this importance of our works of obedience through 21 through 23 by showing that our works of obedience demonstrate our truest loves. And they serve to evidence what we truly love in that way. And then as we arrive here, now after that work, at at verse 24, what Jesus is going to demonstrate to us is that the critical role that our works of obedience play in our relationship to God goes like this. If you obey what Jesus says, you can't have confidence that your life will hold together. But if you neglect legitimate obedience to his word, you can be sure that your life will fall apart. That's what he's going to present for us, the the practical importance of adherence to his word here in Matthew chapter 7. And my burden for you, and I think the burden of the passage this morning, is that there are many of you gathered with us this morning, and you've kind of embraced that subtle idea that if Jesus accepts me on the, basis of Je- uh, if, on, on the basis of what he's done, why do I need to obey God at all? In subtle ways, you've allowed that belief to, to, to be established in your mind, um, and you're building your life on something other than the teachings of Jesus. Maybe it's in the context of your relationships. Maybe it's the way you think about money. Maybe it's the way that, that you, you treat your family at home. You've accepted this subtle idea that you can build your life on something else, but what you've failed to realize is that a storm is coming for you. A storm is coming, and because you've trusted on things that at this moment look pretty good, they look pretty good. When that storm comes, the frailty of the foundation that you've built for your life by establishing it on something other than the teachings of Jesus will be exposed and you'll find your life falling into pieces. And so that's where Matthew 7, 24 through 27 meets us this morning. My prayer for us is that we would be pressed with the importance, the critical role of actually doing what Jesus says for the sustainability of our lives. And as we look at this story, let me just tell you how I kind of want to break out our time with this parable that he tells us. It's pretty simple how we're going to spend our time. I just want to compare and contrast these two builders. We're going to look at the first builder, and then after we look at each builder, I actually think each one of these guys can be found at different places of the Bible. So we're going to look at them right here in Matthew 7, and then we're going to look at them in a couple other places, and I think we'll be encouraged and benefit from their example this morning. So 
Let's do just that. We'll be looking first then at the first builder. Um, If you look down in verse 24, this is what Jesus says about him. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who founded his house upon the rock. So let's, let's look at this first guy. Let's ask the question first. What did he do? Builder number one. Home builder number one. First, he heard the teachings of Jesus. Jesus revealed his will for how this man ought to govern his life. Um, and the man listened, att- listened to it attentively. He, he heard what Jesus had to say, but then step two, he did it, it says. He didn't receive Jesus' opin- teaching as a mere opinion for his life. He didn't uh, receive Jesus' teaching as something that was optional for him to follow. It says that he actually followed it with legitimate obedience. He wasn't just concerned with new information. He was concerned with how that information would transform the way he actually lives. I think James, uh, at the beginning of James, you don't have to turn over there, I just want to read it, but I think James comments on the type of attitude that this first builder had. He says in James 1.22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who intently looks at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But, one, but the one who looks intently to the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So with this reference to the, second, to the first builder here in James 1, there's a deception that was, that was laid out. And that deception was mere reception of Jesus' teaching is enough. Mere gathering of information is sufficient without actually putting that information to practice in the transformation of your life. The deception is that new knowledge can be a substitute for a new way of life. And James is saying that can't be so. You can't just hear and forget, but hear, receive, and put it into practice. And what was the result then of this first builder who who was able to uh, hear and do? Well, Jesus says that he laid a firm foundation for himself. He laid a firm foundation. This wasn't just obedience for obedience sake, wasn't really accomplishing anything, didn't really matter at the end of the day. Something was established as a result of this man's adherence to what Jesus said. He laid a foundation for his life. Now, foundations are kind of a funny thing. Uh, they are probably the most important part to building a house. I've never built a house before, but I'm guessing they're probably the most important part of the house, and yet simultaneously, they're the least thought about part of our house, right? Right? Like if I were to tell you guys this morning, hey, I've got a blank check for you. You can build the dream house. Build anything that you want. Put whatever you want on there. It'll be paid for. Just build that house for yourself. What would be the first things that you guys would think of? You'd be thinking of maybe the kitchen or the theater room. You would be thinking of the pool in the back and water slides and things like that. I doubt if you were building your dream home, the first thing you would think about would be cinder blocks, rebar, and rough, nasty-looking concrete, right? couple of you are engineers that's the, that you do think about that stuff regularly. It's exciting to you. But for most of us, that's not the kind of thing that we think about because foundations aren't that interesting. They're, they're just the, kind of the, the basic under the ground part of our life. And yet they remain the most important part because if you don't have that, the whole house will collapse. Isn't it similar with our basic obedience to what Jesus says in even the mundane areas of our lives? Where 
We're probably not going to be applauded for it. It might not be that exciting at the moment, and yet it becomes a core within us that holds our life together in difficult times. Jesus says this man did just that. He focused on that less exciting part. He focused on the foundation. And as a result, we'll see what happens in just a minute. How does Jesus characterize this man, this first builder? Jesus calls him, him wise. He says this first builder was a wise man. I don't know how you often think about wisdom. Um, someone defined wisdom as this, kind of contrasting it to knowledge, saying, knowledge is knowing that tomatoes are a fruit. Did you guys know that tomatoes are a fruit? It's apparently true. Tomatoes are a fruit. Wisdom, however, is knowing not to put tomatoes in a fruit salad. Um, people have said that wisdom is like the right application of your knowledge, and I think that's true that wisdom is a right application for knowledge, but I think the Bible actually takes it much deeper than that and actually describes wisdom in terms of a relationship. Proverbs 1-7 captures it like this. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So wisdom rightly operating in our lives is this, recognizing the role that the person of God ought to play in our lives and living in light of that. Rightly ordering our lives over the reality that Jesus is Lord, reverencing him as such, um, and, and basing our lives not on our own understanding. That's the picture of biblical wisdom, and that's what this first builder was like. Jesus goes on to tell us that uh, the, the man first heard, he did what he was told, he was wise in doing that. It was like building a foundation for his life, but then something happened. The man, if he were in modern times, pulls out his phone, pulls up the weather app, sees a red flashing light, and he recognizes that a storm is coming. And this is no light storm. This is a storm with uh, throwing everything that it can at the house. It says, and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. This violent storm that comes to this man's house that he's built is giving it everything that it has, and yet it remained intact because of the wise foundation that he built for himself. When the storm came, he remained together. Friends, recognize this morning that obedience to the word of God does not exempt you from storms. It does not exempt you from storms. It just allows you to survive them when they come. It allows you to survive them when they come because the foundation of this man, when the storms picked up, his life stayed intact. And this is why that third step that we talked about in the beginning is so important. Because if actual legitimate obedience to the word of God is a take it or leave it thing in your life, you can be sure that your life will fall apart. But looking at this man's example, we see that because of that foundation that he laid with legitimate obedience, that it remained intact. Now, as I said, I think this, these builders are seen at other places throughout the Bible. And as I think as we look at them, their example will be helpful for us. If you would, turn over to Psalm chapter 1. And I think we see another, another moment where this builder is standing out before us. Psalm 1. This is what it says. I'll read the, the, the first four verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So I think here in Psalm 1, we see an, a, a closer kind of glimpse of this first builder and we see it in the way that he related to God. It says, uh, first of all, in those first couple verses, it kind of describes those who really don't give a rip about what God has to say. They live life the way that they want and they scoff at those who, who do the opposite. But then it goes on to describe this man, this wise man, and, and it says two things about him. The first thing, it says that he delights in the word of God. He finds sincere enjoyment in reflecting on what God has to say to him. He finds, uh, he loves what God has to say about how he ought to live. He loves that. But it's not just that he loves what God has to say about him. Through his delighting in God's word, he comes into an encounter with the person of God himself. Because the rock that we follow isn't just rules to live by, but Jesus. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. And when we meditate on that rock, we come into an encounter with, with a person, not just principles to live by. So he loves this. He loves God's word. He loves what God, God's word has to say on him, but it also says that he meditates on it. He meditates on it. What does that mean? Well, Tim Keller says that to meditate is to think about the implications of God's word for all of life, to think about in its implications for all of life, to, to ponder it, to, to dwell on it, to think about what this would actually mean for, for your world. So rather than just reading the Bible, um, this person is thinking about it. He's pondering it. He's asking, what does this mean for the way that I live? How does this affect my goals, my relationships, my jobs, all of life? What does this word that Jesus is speaking to me have to do with everything? And this builder of ours showing up in Psalms, Psalm 1 loves what God has to say to him and is figuring out how these words fit into his life. So as we think about this first man's example, let me ask those of you gathered with us here this morning, what is your present relationship with this book? What is your present relationship with this book? For some of you, I know this is true that it's almost non-existent. When you leave here on Sundays, that thing stays shut. You go about your week and you return next, the next week having not heard from it since then. There, that relationship is non-existent. But considering the importance of what this book has to do with our lives, the role that it plays in our lives, and the example that we saw with this first man, what would it look like for you to begin building space into your day for this thing to be opened during the week? What would that look like for you? I think for, for many of us, though, there is a relationship with God's word outside of Sunday. It just doesn't look like it does with the man in Psalm 1. Maybe that time is rushed. The, the things that you read kind of go in one ear and out the other. If you were asked five minutes later what you just read, I know I can do this. I would have, man, I totally forgot. I'm not sure. Because there's not this contemplated contemplative dwelling and delighting in what God is saying to us. For some of us this morning, what would it look like to slow down a bit, to build some space in our lives for this to be open and to follow this pattern of dwelling and delighting and meditating that we see in the first builder? I think that's an invitation for many of us this morning from God himself to make this book a more substantial part of our lives through delight and through meditation and let me just get real practical for you at just a, a few things that this should look like. First of all, man, you've got to set a time. If there's not a time being set, the day will go by, busyness steps in, and it just won't happen at all. So the first thing is just setting a time. But then secondly, I always try to have a notebook with me when I'm reading. 
so that I can write out what it is that God's saying and how it might actually have an effect on my life. Um, coffee should also probably be involved in this. If you don't drink it yet, start it. That'll, that'll make it easier. Um, but, uh, but, but during that time, with a notebook open, with the Bible open, you're, you're, you're asking questions of it. You're asking questions like, what does this teach me about God? Write that down. What does this teach me about God? And you write it. What does this show me about myself? What does this show me about the world? And then lastly, is there anything that applies to me today or in my future? Is there some way of what I'm reading that actually has an implication for the way that I live? This is the type of meditation and and a real relationship with this book that I think the first builder lays before us of, of receiving what Jesus has to teach for us, but actually putting it into practice in our lives. And the result of it is a life like the first builder a life that remains intact and flourishes even in the face of trials. So that's the first builder that we have. That's where else he's seen in the Bible. But what about the second builder? What, what about him? Let's, let's walk through and, and take a look at him and, and compare him to the first. Um, the first thing that it says about him, and this is really important, it says about the second builder that he heard. So this is not someone who's ignorant to what Jesus has to say. Don't miss that fact. He's heard the instruction. He's sat in church pews. He's had sufficient access to God's word. It's just what he did with it that was the difference. So what did the second builder do with God's word? Well, really, nothing. It says that he, he didn't do what he heard. He, he did nothing with the words of Jesus. He received the instruction from the mouth of God himself, and yet he chose to neglect that and to live in some other way. I think a more present example of this type of behavior will be seen in many of our homes on Christmas morning. Uh, We'll open up some sort of new product that we got. Um, This happens in my house a lot. A new product is received that requires some assembly. You open that package and it's got the different components and parts that if rightly assembled will amount to a properly functioning item in your home. So it'll have those parts and then it'll have an instruction manual. And many of you, like myself, will look at the parts, look at the instruction manual, say, I got this, we'll set that aside, and proceed to putting this part together. Um, And then later, someone who's a little bit more thoughtful and careful will pick the instruction manual back up and fix the things that didn't go right um, because we didn't didn't follow the instructions. This is, um, this is, the, the, the point of this is that the person who is described here as the second builder is not ignorant. It's not that he doesn't have access to teaching. It's just that he chooses to set that aside and to choose a, his own preferred way. He, he knows what it says, but, but he chooses not to do it. And the result of this was that the person builds a house on the sand. It's unstable. It's shaky. It probably stood for a while. It probably stood for a while. It wasn't like it just fell immediately. And I'd imagine that doing it this way was far more convenient at the moment. Obedience to what Jesus had actually said um, would, have, would have taken perhaps time away from something else or stopped him from doing something that he wanted to do. Um, but he did that. The house stood for a while. And then how does Jesus characterize this man? Jesus describes him as, as foolish. In contrast to the wise builder, this man was a fool now, when we hear the word fool now in 2016, it doesn't quite carry the same weight that I think that it carried here. We'll walk up to our group of friends and be like, what's up, fools? How you guys doing? It doesn't quite carry the same weight. But get this, check this out. The Greek word that's used to describe the man in this passage is the Greek word moros. Now, let me ask you to guess what English word we, de- we derive from that. 
moron. That's where we get the, the word moron. What Jesus is saying here is that this is far more than just kind of uh, basic foolishness, but there's something absurd about this man. There's something absurd about him. In the eyes of Jesus, he's actually moronic. There's a sense of absurdity to the fact that we would look at God's word, his instruction for our lives, and say, you know what? Me, a 22-year-old, in my case, a 28-year-old, I got this. I think I'm good. I'll set that aside. There's something absurd to that, that we would disregard the uh, blueprint that the God of the universe has made for us and choose to live in our own, in, in any way that we choose, to, to hear the words of Jesus and to ignore them. It's, it's moronic. It's foolish. It's absolutely absurd. And we see what happens to this man next. The Weather Channel announced that the same storm was coming. It came in violently. The rain came. The rivers rose. The ground started to flood. And the wind beat against that house. And as a result, it fell to pieces. It completely collapsed. Jesus says, great was the fall of it. The result of this storm was complete and utter devastation because there was no foundation within it to hold it up. The foundation of Christ and his word when trials came along that caused the house to fall to pieces. Now, how does this actually relate to us gathered here this morning? Actual obedience, friends, to the word of Christ is vital because if you neglect it and choose to live any other way like this house in this story, your life will come apart. Jesus' words are not something to be admired. They're not something to be appreciated. They're something to be submitted to and obeyed. And if you choose not to, your world will, in fact, come crashing down. Now, I know as I say that, many of you are looking at me and you just flat out disagree. Say, man, maybe you grew up in church, you've walked away for a while, maybe you've really never followed Jesus and you're saying to yourself, to be honest, my life is going just fine right now. Certainly I have my ups and downs, but falling completely apart, I mean, that's a little bit extreme. But don't you see that even in this story, the house stood just fine for a while. It stood just fine for a while. And there's two storms that are coming that are going to test it. The first is that the, the struggles of this life will come and they'll beat you down. We're a young church, right? Many of us haven't faced a whole lot, but those of us who have been around a little bit longer can tell you that this world will wear on you. There are difficulties and storms coming our way, maybe in, fam- in our families, with our jobs, uh, with marriages, uh, with illnesses. Storms are coming that haven't tested what we've been building our, li- building our lives on yet, and as a result, we're doing just fine, but wait until that storm comes. The reason things haven't fallen apart yet is because the storm hasn't arrived at you. But secondly, you need to know that a much greater and more serious storm is coming your way as well. And my prayer is even at this moment that the Lord himself would make you aware of this. That storm is coming when you die and you stand before the judgment seat of God alone with the foundation that you've built for yourself exposed. And the judgment of God for those who choose to live however they want, rejecting the God who made them, is often described in the Bible as a storm. And on that day, when you stand one-on-one before God, there is only one foundation that will hold you up in that moment. That one foundation is Christ himself. He is the solid rock that can, the only thing that can hold us together when we face God and have to give an account for our lives. 
So whether it's a storm in this life or a storm that hits you later on when you stand before the Lord who made you, you can be sure if God's word was of no interest to you, you will come crashing down. As we saw initially with the first uh, builder, I think he was referenced elsewhere in the Bible. So it is with the second. I think we see him over in Luke 15. If you want, you can turn over there with me and we'll take a look at this guy. Luke 15, we're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son. I think this is a wonderful manifestation of builder number two expressed in in the Bible. Um, Let me read it and we'll walk through it and then then we'll wrap up. Um, starting at verse, in verse 11 in Luke 15, this is what it says. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them, and not many days later the son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property on reckless living. So here's the deal, first part of the story. There's this son, he's living in his father's house, And I get the idea that he's not too fond of his dad's rules and instructions for his life. Uh, He'd much rather go live the way that he wants to, and so he comes up with a plan. I can go to my father and ask him for the inheritance that I'll receive when when he dies. So he basically goes to his father and tells him, hey dad, you're basically as good as dead to me. Let me have your stuff so that I can go and, and live the way that I want to. So he takes it, he leaves, and he goes and lives the way that he'd always wanted to, rejecting um, his father's instruction and building the life for himself that he had always wanted, doing it his way. Verse 14, let's see what happens next. It says that after he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So pause again right there. Uh, he, he builds the life the way that he wants to. He, he goes out with freedom, with reckless living, parties, prostitutes, you name it. Whatever he wants, he's got it. And it worked for a while. It worked out for a while, but then what happened? A storm came along, and really, I guess it's the opposite of a storm. It's a famine, but it has the same result on him. The foundation that he had built for himself because of the famine became exposed, and just like the second builder, when that foundation was exposed through the storm, his life begins to fall to pieces. His friends leave, the money's gone, the fun is over, and all the things that he was trusting in came up short during the time of testing, and his life fell to pieces, living with the pigs, covered in filth, and starving. And so he comes up with a plan. In this moment of his life falling apart at the seams, in this moment of desperation, this is what he comes up with. He came to himself and said, man, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, I know many of you are very familiar with this story, but just try to take yourself out of it for a second. And what type of response would you you suspect for the father, coming from the father when he sees his son coming? What, What might we expect the father to say as he saw his son walking over the hill? Boy, I told you this would happen. I told you this would happen. Every day you heard what I said on how to build your life and you thought you knew better. 
You made this mess, you clean it up. You let your life fall apart, you put it back together. Maybe that's how we'd expect even ourselves, maybe many of our earthly fathers to respond, but look at the response to the father of the prodigal son. After his life fell to pieces, this is what he says. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion on him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him and said, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the best ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine who was dead is alive again. And he was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. The father looks at him and says, I don't want to hear your rehearsed apologies. I'm not here to give you a lecture. I love you, and I'm glad that you're home. Now let's get to work at putting this life of yours that you've let fall to pieces back together, and how we're going to kick it off is with a big celebration. Kill the calf, get the wine, let's party. Friends, the good news of the gospel for us this morning is that Jesus came for the second builder. The one who knew better, the one who ignored God, the one who was foolish and arrogant. That's who Jesus came for. And when our world comes tumbling down because we've built it on something other than Christ himself, he's there for us and he's the only one who can put this thing back together. And maybe that's precisely the place that some of you find yourselves in this morning. You've chose to live uh, another way. You've chose to build your life on something besides God. But the Father is ready for you to come home, not to give you a lecture but a brand new life, a brand new life. And this is only made possible because Jesus went through a storm that none of us could ever endure. When we were out living as we wanted to, rejecting God, doing things our own way, Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he was pinned up on the cross. And while he was there, he felt the, fu- the full fury of God's judgment against our sin. He felt the, the full fury of God's judgment against our sin. And as his body was broken to pieces, as he hung up in our place, that was done so that our lives that are in pieces can be brought back together. All of us in some way or another are the second builder. We've foolishly thought that we know better, we can live our lives the way that we want to, and everything will be fine Our life begins to fall apart, but Jesus is there coming after us. And so as we come together this morning to communion, I hope you're reminded of that reality. Maybe you've been following Jesus and for a while you have actually been neglecting his word for an area of your life. Maybe it's in a relationship that you know you're not supposed to be in. Maybe it's through neglecting, uh, bringing the word of God to your family Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the case is, but, but you've begun to neglect God's word for your life. As we come to the table this morning, we're reminded that Jesus's body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven for our arrogant building of our lives our own way. And so as we come forward to the table this morning, I want to just encourage you to slow down a bit. You don't have to run forward to come to the table. Reflect on this. If there's an area of your life that has been detached from God's instruction to you, to to bring that before him, to confess that, and then to come and embrace the reality that Jesus gave his life for you, the second builder.
And if you're here this morning with us and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, my encouragement to you is actually not to come forward to take communion at the table. Um, For those of us who come forward, this is a symbol that we believe wholeheartedly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we symbolize that through this meal. But if you don't believe that, this is just some bread um, and and Welch's grape juice. But but instead of coming forward to the table, hear me on this. I want to encourage you not to just be passive in this time, but to, to hang out in your seat and reflect. Maybe you have come here this morning and your life has begun to fall apart because God is nowhere in it. You've been walking away from him for a long time. If you're ready to come back home like, this, that, like the boy in this story, it begins by simply turning away from that life, saying, I'm done living the way that I've been living. I'm coming back to my father. And then secondly, it, it, it involves believing in what Jesus has done for you that your sin deserved the, the punishment that Jesus received on the cross and he willingly took that in your place so that you could be forgiven. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm pleading with you, don't come to this table. Come to God himself and believe that he gave his son for you. So the way that we take communion here at Sojourn, we've got two tables in the front, two tables in the back. Uh, it doesn't have to be rushed. Come forward when you're ready. And as you take the elements, remember that Jesus came for you, the second builder so that your life, even though you let it fall apart, could be brought back together. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, all of us are naturally um, opposed to what you have to say to us. Oh boy, all of us think we know better. We, we, we hear your word. We feel uh, the, 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 in our conscience how we ought to live, and we all turn from that. We reject it. And I thank you, Lord, that though we deserve to just have our lives completely come tumbling down. You came for for the second builder like us. As we come forward to the table this morning, I pray that um, the cost that it it took for us to be forgiven would be um, awakened and brought to life in our minds. As we celebrate Advent, let us remember that you came for foolish people like us, the second builder who thought we knew better. So we come this morning to receive you. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. We pray this together now in Jesus' name. Amen.